0: Hey, we're in this series. We're kind of in the home stretch here. This the series we're calling Doxa. Doxa, if you weren't here in the very first part of the series. We spent some time explaining that. It's a Greek word. Remember, the the Bible wasn't originally written in English. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And doxa is a Greek word that's often translated in your Bible in the New Testament. That's the second part of the Bible from Matthew to Revelation. It's often translated as the word glory but in a common everyday written language in those times, it also carried the meaning of something that you believe or something that you accept as true. Now, I like that that word is used for both of those because the truth of God's word is always going to lead you into glorious living. So this idea of doxa or is exploring the seven, what we believe as a church, are the seven foundational beliefs of Christianity. The seven foundation, it's not the only things about Christianity that we believe to be true as a church, but these seven form for us the foundation. And And the tagline here is never again out of place because we want you to understand that these beliefs are not just about intellectual assent. They're supposed to be about life transformation. There's a slide that's going to come up on the screen. God is one. The Bible is true. The cross is enough. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. Mankind is helpless. Jesus is life. That's going to be our Easter sermon. And then eternity is real and the church is central. Again, we've done most of those. If you're visiting tonight, or you're visiting online, you can get all those on our YouTube channel. Or you can get it on our website. If you're not careful, Christianity and the study of Christian beliefs will lead you into this place that I call religious intellectualism. You'll get stuck in this cul-de-sac of just of an academic experience. Is the academic side of Christianity important? Of course it is. Is studying the Bible important? Of of course it is. But, But it's not good if you stay there. At some point, those beliefs are supposed to instruct how we live. At some point, those beliefs are supposed to take us somewhere. In fact, I would argue those beliefs at some point are supposed to posture us somewhere. The ones that we've done so far is God is one. And I taught you this statement that the oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. And that should bring us into a place of trust. Right? You should be asking yourself this question. Is my belief that God is one posturing me in a place of trust? The goal is at the end of this series that you are going to now have throughout your life and journey of discipleship as a follower of Jesus, a way to ask yourself some questions. Some questions of self-reflection. right? What would it do for you if every year for the rest of your life you set aside some time to ask yourself the question, is my belief in the oneness of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is that causing my heart to be postured in a place of trust with Him? What if you put that on a scale of one to five. And you did that year after year after year, and you could see how maybe it moved around a little bit based on your life circumstance. It would create a a common language for you in talking with other people about how you're doing in your journey as a child of God. How about the Bible is true? God didn't create the Bible for reading. He wrote the Bible to recreate us, and that should posture me in a place of surrender, Is my belief that the Bible is true posturing me in a place of surrender? Am I submitting my life to this book? Meaning that as I'm reading this book and I find things in my life that are missing or things that are present that aren't supposed to be there, am I working to remove the things that don't belong and to add the things that are missing? I'm posturing my heart in a place of surrender. The church is central. The church of Jesus is where the example of Jesus is lived by the people of Jesus. Should posture me in a place of sacrifice. If I believe that the church is central, if I believe that it's supposed to be central to my experience as a devoted follower of Christ, am I postured in a place of sacrificial living towards other people? Which means that, is there a community of people that I serve? Which means that, as I'm serving that community of people, am I making their needs just as important as my own? Eternity is real. We did this one recently. I am an immortal and eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever. should posture me in a place of hope. If I believe that eternity is real, it should posture me in a place of hope. Even in the midst of the craziest year maybe you could ever have, there should be something that anchors you, and that is that when this life is over, I know what's waiting for me. There is a hope that you can have. There is a hope that you should have. Last week we talked about mankind being helpless by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because I am eternally lost on my own. If I believe that, if I believe in the helplessness of myself to save myself, it should posture me in a place of confession, that I am constantly in this place, Not, not of demeaning myself, not of belittling myself, but acknowledging my need for Jesus as a Savior. This whole idea of being postured in in, in beliefs, placing us somewhere. comes out of Genesis 3, 8 and 9. And this is where Adam and Eve commit the first sin, and they find themselves in the garden. They're hiding, and Jesus is showing up on that next day. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? I think we're supposed to ask ourselves that question on an ongoing basis. As devoted followers of Christ, there should be this this journey that we're on where we're in our conversations with each other, and our conversations with ourselves, asking ourselves, where am I in this belief of God being one, the Bible being true, the church being central? Are are, are we picking these beliefs up and just wrestling with them for the sake of curiosity? Or are we going to let these beliefs wrestle with us to change us and transform us into the people that God created us to be. Somebody say the cross is enough. Cross is enough. My friend Robbie is here tonight. Everybody say hi Robbie. hi, Robbie. Robbie makes noises when other people don't, and I'm okay with that, and I hope you are too. So, just We're glad that you're here, Robbie. You are always welcome in this house, noises and all. Come on. There you go. There you go. If the person beside you wasn't clapping, you should just give them a quick elbow in the ribs. Just, I'm not going to look to see who that was. am not going to look. Somebody say, the cross, the cross is enough. All right, here's your statement you're learning tonight. I am at one with God, rescued from myself, just as if I'm perfect because Jesus paid it all. I am at one with God, rescued from myself, just as if I'm perfect because Jesus paid it all. Now, I'm not going to fill that blank into you until later in the service because this one, just like all the other ones, it should bring me somewhere. If we believe this, it should take us to a place. If I believe that the cross is enough, does it posture me in a place of? I know you don't know yet, but you're going to know soon. You're going to know soon. This statement, if you go onto our website, there's there's lots of things on there. If you're new to the church, you should check it out because a lot of things that we put on there are for you. But we talk about our message, and this this statement on there is our message. It is it is the most succinct description that describes what we believe the gospel is. That I know, we are a gospel centered church. So this statement, this is the core of our message as a church. We, we, we have a moment that we talk about. Your family from the first, hello. We have a mission that's on there. We talk about our dream. You should check those things out. But if you go on there, you're going to see this statement, and this statement is important because it is the gospel. If, if you believe that the cross is enough, then this statement is true for you. This statement is comprised of four phrases, and each of these four phrases comes from, from a very important theological term. Now we're not gonna spend at time and these at length because that can take us down an academic exploration that maybe two people in here would appreciate. You with me? But it is important that you understand the general nature of what they mean. Atonement, redemption, justification, and propitiation. Each of these words create for us the statement that we just read. I am at one with God, rescued from myself, just as if I'm perfect, because Jesus paid it all. Maybe you're seeing some of these words for the first time, but you have experienced what these words mean many times. Everybody in this room has experienced the feeling of atonement at some point. Every person in this room, at some point when you were younger, you had a friend that you felt like betrayed you. Maybe you were sitting around the table at lunchtime in the cafeteria, or maybe you were on the playground, or maybe you were in a homeschool study group and the kids were all together in an unsupervised moment, and maybe somebody began to make fun of you a little bit. And, and the person that you thought was your friend, the person you thought was on your side, joined in with them and it hurt. You with me? Everybody here who has experienced that at some point in their life. And, and that feeling that you had of being hurt created a moment of separation between you and that friend. Right? You, before that moment, you felt connected to that friend. Before that moment, there was trust you had with that friend. But in that moment, there was a feeling of disconnect that you had. And then if they were a good friend, they found you and they came and apologized to you and they made it right. If they were a really good friend, they went to the other people and apologized and said that shouldn't happen again. They, they stood up for you. And, and then when they offered that apology that was sincere and you trusted them, you felt reconnected to that person. You tracking with me? Every single one of us in this room are born into this world separated from God. We are born into this world in a place of enmity with him. There's a feeling of disconnect that we have with him. And and when you make a vow of devotion to Jesus, when you come into this understanding of who Jesus is, which we're gonna talk some more about tonight, and you understand about what he did to you for you, and, and you make a vow of devotion to him, something happens. You find a sense of being reconciled to your creator, your heavenly Father. You felt disconnected from him, you felt far away but then you fought with him. If you've never had that feeling, come on, then something grand and glorious is waiting for you. That's what atonement means. It means to be at one with. If you're married, and you've had a conversation, a discussion, whatever euphemism you use in your home for argument, you understand that before that argument, you had a sense of you were connected to that person, and then because of that argument, you felt disconnected from that person. And then you had this experience, hopefully, if you have a healthy marriage, where there was a moment of reconciliation where you felt reconnected to one another. God wants you to discover that feeling with him. God, that, that feeling you've had with friends, that feeling you've had with a spouse, right? that feeling you've had with a neighbor, that feeling you've had with a co-worker to be at one with, God wants you to know that feeling with him. Redemption. How about an RC going to, was it Lecrae last night? A Lecrae concert? Come on. I got to tell you, Vanessa and I, we're old. I'm old, and she stuck with me. Did I do that better? Okay, good, good, good. We crawled in bed at about 1030, and we said, remember when our kids were teenagers and we were waiting in the church parking lot because the youth pastor kept them out for half the night and we're dozing off. And we were like, isn't it great that we're not those people anymore? Because you know what we didn't do? We did not get in our car and come down to this church parking lot to encourage you. We fell asleep. And those days are waiting for you in your future. We, we, we put in our time in. you you're, you got to put your time into. The only way they were able to get into that concert is because they redeemed a ticket that they paid for. Now, they might not have had a paper ticket like we did right? It's probably they scan something on their phone. It's a QR code. It's like you, right, you go to the movie theater, you show your phone, and they scan it. How about this new thing, reserved seating in movie theaters? How, why did it take us so long to figure that out as a society? You, you understand that you, when you purchase something for an experience that you're going to go have, bush gardens, water country, right? You buy a ticket. You, you have a coupon, Coupon's still a thing? You redeem the coupon. You're, you're checking out. They might ask you, Do you have any coupon? Or I have because I have five cars I'm trying to keep running on the road. I'm always at the Auto Part store and they say, You have rewards. Would you like to redeem them? Right? It's, it's something that you've paid for and now when you turn it and redeem it, you get the benefit of it. This is what redemption means. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus's death on the cross. He paid a price. Guess who the prize is? The prize is you. That's that's one of the great promises in this book. God sees you as a prize. God sees you as an experience. God sees you as someone that he loves deeply and that he wants to know you and he wants you to have the feeling of being known by him. Jesus paid the price for you to be the prize that is in the possession of the Father who created you. Redemption justification, just as if I'm perfect. Just as if I'm perfect. Justification does not mean justified. That's different. If, if you spend time volunteering with our kids in the nursery, there's a lot of behavior that you just let go. You don't correct every wrong thing that you see in there, or you're just going to spend your time correcting the whole time. right? They're justified and their behavior because they don't know any better. In the parenting class, Plug for Life groups that Vanessa's getting ready to teach, we we teach you to recognize the difference between childishness and foolishness. Childishness is justified. They don't know any better. Foolishness is you should know better, and there should be a moment of correction. And then that list will grow and change as your children grow and change. God, we're not justified. God doesn't say, you know what? I should have done a little bit better creating that one. Maybe I left some things out and that's why they, they just are always messing up. No, no, that's justified. Justified is different from justification. Justification means that not only do we find forgiveness because Jesus died on the cross for us, it means that because he died on the cross for us, we now are the benefactor of his innocence. It's different, you with me? That means that when God, if you make a vow of devotion to Christ, when God sees you, even though we are guilty, he sees the innocence of his son. That's what it means to be justified. We're the benefactor of his innocence. Propitiation. Somebody says, hey, what did you guys do at church on Saturday? You should say, we talked about propitiation. You'll at least get them to pause for a moment. Propitiation might be the simplest word that's on this list. When you're at a group lunch with some friends and the server comes, it says, one check or separate checks? And there's this pause that you should fill with just one check, and then you pick who it goes to, right? If you're quick, right, you determine who, right, just one and you can give it to them, right? You, you understand this idea if you've been in a group setting, S- somebody has to pay for the food that's been brought to the table. There's, there's, a, there's a price to be paid. And if you've been in a, been in a group like where somebody reaches and says, I've got it, and pays for it, right, you have this feeling of, right, I, am the, I benefit because somebody else paid the price. And they just didn't pay their portion, they paid your portion. Propitiation means that Jesus picked up the check for our sin, for all people, for all time, even though he didn't even have any expenses on the bill to be paid. See, the better example would be if you're in a restaurant and you pay your bill. If you've never done this, you should do it. Every now and again, when you go into a restaurant, you should ask God, is there anybody in this room that you want me to pay their bill? And Jesus, let it be this single, really skinny, small person that's over here and not the 45 office party over here. You you with me? If, you have, if you've never done it, you should do it. Every now and or at least be open to the whisper. At least be, I remember just this past October, we had a wedding up in Michigan, and I did. I'm a motorcycle rider, and so Vanessa went up with, with the kids, and then I did a solo motorcycle trip to Michigan, and I stopped halfway in, 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 in Pittsburgh. And so we have the same credit card, and she looked at the, uh, the Outback bill, and, uh, and she's like, dear Lord, what did he have for dinner, right? She was like, honey, I, you know, I don't want to judge. I know this is a trip. She's tripping on. I, know, I just, you know, but it seems like you spent a lot of money on food, right? I said, I know. That wasn't just my food. There was an elderly couple that was sitting a couple of seats over, holding hands. Just, it was like they were newly married, even though you could tell they weren't. You could tell they've lived their lives together, right? And I had this feeling of, I'm going to pay for their dinner. I'm going to pay. If This idea of propitiation means that you pick up the check even when you don't have expenses on the tab. That's what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago when he went to the cross. He wasn't dying for any of his sins because he didn't have any. He paid the price. He paid it all. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, his death was enough to satisfy the penalty For all my past and future sins, making it possible for me to know God and to be known by Him, to no longer be a slave to my human nature, becoming the undeserving benefactor of all of God's promises because Jesus died for me. Somebody say the cross is enough. When you, when you look at these four words, atonement, redemption, justification, and propitiation, you should understand there are no alternatives to this. This is hard for us in American culture because we live in a land of alternatives. We live in an endless land of alternatives. If we don't like something that we have, we just move on to the next thing. If we don't like where we are, we just pick up and go. We're immersed in this culture of alternatives. You, we cannot bring that mindset and mentality into this world of Scripture there are some things in here where God says, this is it. There are no alternatives for how we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is the only way. You should understand that no person is too bad. No person is beyond these four words. There's nobody here within the sound of my voice, and if you've thought this, you've got to let it go, where you think that God looks at you and says, you know what? You're, you're just a little bit too much for me. There's nobody where he looks at you and says, you know what, You're, you just went too far with your sin. None of us are beyond the reach of the redemption that Jesus offers. No time is too late. This is important. You might say, well, Fred, I've, been, I've, I've circled back to this place where I know God's calling me to a place of surrender to Him, and I've walked away every single time. Can I just tell you, as long as you have breath, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. And this last one, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different from there's no alternative, but it's the idea that there's no expiration. You might say, Well, Fred, there's no alternative to these four things today, but maybe if mankind lives another 100, 500 years before Jesus comes back, maybe we'll figure out a different way to be reconciled to God. And I would say to you, We're not gonna. We're not gonna. Jesus made one path for us, and that one path stands for all time. The cross is enough. Vanessa and I and our kids moved here in 2007 to be on staff here at the City Life Church. And back then we were meeting at Regal Cinema, the movie theater. Some of you have heard this story before. So we, we didn't really step into the lead role until February of 2008. And and so as we began planning the, the, the sermons we were going to be sharing, as we, were, we knew that summer was going to be a big summer because it was going to launch our first summer series in the history of the church. And I remember sitting down with Vanessa one afternoon. We were having a cup of coffee, and I, I said, I think I've figured out what I want to do for the summer series. And her face kind of lit up. I said, "I said we're, we're going to do, do the summer series. It's going to be called The Minor Prophets, They Still Speak. And we're going to work our way through all of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And she looked at me. I kid you not. She said with a straight face, no, really, what are we going to do for the summer series? <laughs> so I was like, great, great. You know, and you know what we did for the summer series? We did the Minor Prophets. They still speak, and every week we spent uh, we spent a whole message on one of the minor prophets. Can I just tell you something happened in our church that summer when we got to Hosea that we 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 had people standing. It's a movie theater. We didn't have a big altar like this, right? You've been in a movie theater before. It is not made for church services. It's certainly not made for praying for people at church services. And at the end of that service, we were talking about Hosea and his love for his wife and how that is a sign for God's love for us. It was just an everyday ordinary sermon, but something happened in our church family back that summer in 2008. People were crying. People were standing in the aisles waiting for prayer. Our church became a place of healing that summer of 2008, and it's still a place of healing today. I remember we did the book of Amos. We we broke it down. There's eight prophecies, three sermons, five visions, and five promises. And if you're thinking, oh, dear Lord, I hope we're not going to do all those tonight, we're not. But in one of those visions, in Amos 9, verse 1, we find this verse. Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. He said, strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundation will shake and bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill them with the sword. Those who survive, no one will escape. That's the memory verse for our kids' church tonight. Just kidding. Just making sure you're paying attention out there. If you're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll read the Bible so quickly We'll move past the things that God's saying to us. Right, right there in the beginning where it says that the Lord was standing beside the altar. Can I just tell you, centuries ago, when Amos as a prophet stood before a crowd of people and proclaimed this vision, that one statement shook them to the core. It shook them to the core because they understood that the Lord is not supposed to be standing by the altar Because back then, there was a temple that was the center of all of Judaism, which was the worship of the one true God then. And in that layout of that temple, there was the place, what's called the holiest of holies, and that's where the presence of God was. And that was the only place that the presence of God was back then. And out in the courtyard, there was an altar where sacrifices were made. And those sacrifices were to appease the judgment of God so that God stayed on what was called, and we're going to see an amendment, a seat of mercy. If God is outstanding by the altar, something has gone wrong. If you are a parent and you have ever said to your child, do not make me get up and come over there. Anybody else said that? I know some of you said it just a little while ago. If you're driving in the car... Do not make me pull this car over. You never understood how long of an arm your parents had until they could spank you while driving a car and you're in the back seat. They could reach you. Lord help children with Teslas where you don't even have to have a hand on the steering wheel anymore. It's going to be bad for this next generation. Bad. Bad. You're going to see parents climbing over the seats. Car's just driving itself. Driving itself, oh! You thought that technology was good, young people. It's, it's coming for you. It is coming for you. Exodus thirty-seven, six through nine. Then he made the ark's cover, the place of atonement. Oh, you see, you recognize that word. You're like, okay from pure gold. It was 45 inches long and 47 inches wide. He made two cherubim from hammered gold and placed them on the two ends of the atonement cover. He molded the cherubim of each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. And the cherubim faced each other and looked down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it. They protected it. This idea, right, of the ark's cover. Let's go to the next one. It's the same verses. That what I just read was the New Living Translation. This is the English Standard Version. Let's ha- look, look at how it changes. And he made a mercy seat of pure, pure gold, because in Hebrew the word for seat and cover it's the same word. This is one of the reasons why we study multiple translations when we do our messages here on Saturday, because we want you to get the full meaning, so you can have the full intent. It's a cover for the Ark of the Covenant, but it wasn't just supposed to serve a functional purpose of closing a sacred box. It was there as a picture of a mercy seat, and the top of it had an angel on each side. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what it looks like, right? But the angels have their heads down and their wings. We were joking. It's the original dab right there in the Old Testament. An angel on each side, both wings. And as their wings met in the middle, it created a seat. And it's called the mercy seat of God. It's called the mercy seat because that's where he sits because of the sacrifices that are being offered to appease his judgment. When Amos said, and the Lord was standing by the altar, it would have caused them to shudder. You with me? because it means that his mercy was being withheld because the sacrifices were not enough. All of this in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, is all saying one simple phrase to the world. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And because Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you know where God has seated himself? From the moment Jesus died and rose from the dead, from the moment he conquered sin and death, Jesus, because of what he did, God sits upon the mercy seat for you and me because of what he did. Hebrews ten fourteen reads this way. Oh, it's so good. For by that one offering, speaking of Jesus, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. There's no more need for sacrifices. There's there's no more need for animal death. There's, There's no more need for that sacrificial system because Jesus has done the work that none of that could. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. The mosaic system of sacrifice was always pointing to Jesus. Everything about it, the reason why we study it, the reason why we read it, the reason why we refer to it is because God took a nation and for century after century after century, he baked and built into their culture one prophetic declaration that is Jesus will one day come and die for the sins of the world. Every sin is hidden in the shadow of the cross. Come on. Every sin. There is no sin that you and I have ever committed or could commit that is too big for the forgiveness that's offered to you and me because of Jesus. The cross is the only bridge to God. I'm telling you there's no other way. We like multiple ways to get across places, do we not? had to Friday morning, I was experiencing a little little trauma because I had to go to the airport to pick up Kelby. And I'm thinking to myself, he's, he's flying in on Friday morning. I got to cross the, I got to go through the HRBT, right, during work traffic, right? Around here, if you've got to go somewhere at 7, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning and cross the bridge, you've got to either be an hour early or an hour late. You with me? We like options because if that's backed up, I'll take the monitor Merrimack. If things really get bad, I'll do the JRB putting another tube in. We like options. There is only one bridge that spans the chasm that separates us from our creator, and that's the bridge of the cross that Jesus died on for you and for me. This message that the cross is enough is hard for us, again, in our American culture, because this idea of inclusivity and exclusivity, we, we wrestle with these words as a society, as well we should. But when it comes to Christianity, we need to understand how each of these words are present. The invitation for forgiveness is absolutely inclusive. It means that it, he extends it to everyone. But it's exclusive in the sense that if we reject it, there's no other plan. There's no other way for our relationship with God to be restored. I invite the, the keys to come up. He's already there, isn't he? Yeah. They get, me, they get me every time. They get me every time. It's so good. So good. I want you to hear me say something. That you're going to hear me say every Saturday night. I think forever. And that's welcome home. Welcome home. Not, not welcome home to this church. That's not what these moments are about. It's about, about, about welcome home to God. It's a different kind of home. It's a different kind of welcome. Because as we've already said tonight, every person's greatest need is to know God and to be known by Him. And as we've already said tonight, that all of us are born into this world separated from God. And, and the regrets that we have, the sin that we commit, the mistakes that we make, you know what? That keeps us separated from It keeps us separated from him. And there's going to come a time in all of our lives when we breathe our, li- our last breath and our lives come to an end, and we're going to have to stand before God and give, give an account for our lives. It's our moment of judgment. All of us are going to stand in that moment, all of us. And it breaks my heart and it breaks the heart of this church to think that there will be people on that day of judgment and it is the first time that they will ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by Him. We want to change that as a church. So we're creating these moments every Saturday. Every Saturday. Because in God's system of justice, the smallest sin, the, the, the least regret, God says, deserves eternal death. Now you might say... Knowing that, Fred, I'm going to do better. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to be a better person. But you can't live that good of a life. You just can't. None, none of us can outrun our human nature. We're all going to keep making mistakes. All of us, we're going to keep making mistakes. But that's where the good news of Jesus Christ comes in. Jesus comes and he says, I can help you with that. A favorite verse of ours is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that says, If anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation." The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus says, I can change the nature of who you are. I can change you from the inside out. And then he says, because of what I did on the cross 2000 years ago, I've already paid a price for all the mistakes you every regret that you have. I can forgive that. And not only that, but that sacrifice stands through all of time. So the mistakes that we are going to make, he says, I'm going to forgive those in advance. In advance so that when you and I stand before God on that fateful day, on that day of judgment, we do not have to fear condemnation. We have the hope of the promise of eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. We're creating this moment every Saturday because we want people to have an opportunity to hear what you just heard, so they might have a chance to believe what many of you have believed, so that you can come to a place of confession So that you can come to a place like what we like to call it here at City Life to make a vow of devotion to Jesus. A vow of devotion to Jesus is you simply saying to him, Jesus, I believe that you're God's son, that you died and you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now to come and begin to do that work of transformation in my heart. I accept the forgiveness that you offer. And I believe that from this day forward, I live with the hope of eternal life. And can I just tell you, for everybody who prays that kind of prayer, everybody who comes to that place of making a vow of devotion, can I just tell you that all of heaven in that moment says the same thing to you? They say to you, welcome home. Because you were created to be there. You were created to be a part of the family of God. Every single one of us, when we make a vow of devotion to Jesus, the Bible uses incredible language. It it calls it being born again. Why? Because you're born into God's family. And they say to us, welcome home. And for the rest of your days, you know what you have? For the rest of your days, you have this incredible gift of knowing God and being known by him. And you can have the richness of that experience of intimacy with your creator for the rest of your days and on in through eternity. Stand with me as we pray.